I'm now going to read uh, from Matthew 21. So if you grab your Bibles, Matthew 21, and it's verse 28, and I'm going up to verse 39. It's the parable of the two sons. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect the fruit. The tenants seized the servants. They beat one, killed another and stoned a third. When he sent out other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them in the same way, last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they, they took him and threw him out the vineyard and killed him. There are lots of ways of getting people's attention. There's the big pause where you just wait, you let things hang just to try and grab people's attention. There's the, uh, there's the one when you come in close to the camera or you lean in close to someone. The big pause, the, the lean in, there's, there's the clench fist, especially if you're a politician. You, you, this shows that you mean what you're going to say. Jesus very rarely, I'm sure, used any of those techniques. But one thing we see quite frequently in the gospel is his use of the word amen. We say uh, amen at the end of a prayer, but Jesus sometimes said uh, amen or truly, truly. He said that not at the end, but right at the beginning of what he was saying. And when Jesus says amen at the beginning of a sentence, it really shows that what he's about to say is important. It's his way of saying uh, this is truly important. This is really important. This is stop what you're doing, put down what's in your hands, and listen to me, important. And one of the times that Jesus says, truly, truly, amen, amen, at the beginning of a sentence is, is right in this passage. You may have noticed this. It's in the sentence 31. Jesus has confronted the religious leaders at the beginning of the chapter. He's come into Jerusalem on the back of a colt, showing that he's a unique countercultural king. We thought about that last week. He enters into Jerusalem astride a, be a beast of burden. He goes into the temple. He turns over the, uh, the tables of the money changers, and he's confronting the religious leaders, the, the religious um, higher guard with his actions and now he does it with his words so you can see that he's speaking to the religious leaders from sentence 23 and sentence 45 of matthew 21 and right in the middle he says this important stop what you're doing sit up and listen to what i've got to say sentence it's in sentence 31 i tell you the truth truly 
truly. An older version has verily, verily. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, sentence 31. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Did you hear that, religious leaders? Did you hear that, people that think you're by your own merit you can get into heaven? Ahead of you in the queue will be those people that you look down upon. People that will enter into my kingdom will be the prostitutes. The people you think are worth nothing will be the tax collectors, the people you think are the lowest of the low. They will come into my kingdom before you who rely on your moral effort, who rely on your goodness to overcome their badness. You can't look down on them, says Jesus, because truly, I tell you the truth, they will get into the kingdom of heaven before you. Jesus surrounds that teaching, that sentence that's so explosive when we think about it with two parables. I want us to look at both parables. We're going to chop and change, go back and forward so that we get a firm understanding of what Jesus says in his put down whatever you're doing. Listen to me sentence, which is sentence 31. I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. What's Jesus teaching us? few things as always first of all jesus is telling us uh, with the parable of the tenants jesus is showing us the problem that we all have the problem that we all have we see that from the the second parable which is called the parable of the tenants now who are these tenant farmers they're not really farmers they're they're more like investors look at the beginning of the parable verse 33 there was a landowner you can see it on the screen now. There, there was a landowner. He's not someone who had a piece of uh, straw or a piece of grass out of his mouth with the straw hat of parody of the farmer. This person, sentence 33, is more like an investor. We can see that from sentence 33. There was a landowner, and look what the landowner put in place. He put in a tower for protection against predators and animals. He, he built a wall to protect his crop and the well, and he... Uh, he also put in place the wine press to take the grapes in and to make the wine and so on. So this, this was like Denby's down at Box Hill. This is not like a, an open piece of agricultural land. This is, a, this is a man of means. And he turns to the tenant farmers in verse 34. It's their job to uh, look after his crop and to collect in the harvest and to give him the fruit of their labor. They were to pay him the rent. And he gets a piece of the action. He gets a return on his investment that's been well made. He's done the research. He's looked at the stocks and the bonds and the options. And he's invested a lot of his capital resources in this wine press and in this wall and in this tower. He's not the farmer. He gives out the, his resources. He entrusts it to tenant farmers. But they attack him because they want to be the owners. And his this person says so clearly, it's like a toy shop owner and children who say, we don't want you. We want what we can get from you, but we don't want you. And that's just what the tenant farmers do towards the investor. They attack those who he sends. They attack anyone who comes uh, into their realm of influence. And then they attack the son, the one who most reminded them of all that they were not the owners. They, in fact, were the tenants. They were wannabes. They were wannabe owners, but actually they were tenants. They were wannabe investors. But in fact, the uh, 
responsibility that they had was given to them by the owner. This image of a vineyard is very significant, not just in Matthew, but throughout the Bible. It's there in Isaiah 5, it's there in Psalm 80, as well as a number of other passages as well. All through the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible, the, the vineyard is a picture, it's a metaphor for God's people. It's a metaphor for Israel. And the vineyard and the keepers of the vineyard are God's uh, appointed religious leaders. Sometimes they're kind to God's people and God's people prosper, but very often they're unkind and they treat God's people poorly. When this uh, image is given in the Hebrew Bible, God has already rescued his people from the slave drivers of Egypt. He's promised them the promised land and he's leading them there. And as he's about to lead them into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's a passage that's on the screen now. God is warning his people that they are not the landowners, but everything they've received has been given to them. This is what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers to see they're on a journey, cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God and serve him warning. Serve him only. Do, do you hear the warnings that, you, that God is saying? Do you hear the, the call that God is placing upon his people? Be careful. Be attentive. Listen. Guard your heart. This is a danger for every single person in the universe. The good gifts that God has given to us, and to God's people, the good gifts that I'm given to you, the, the slavery that's a distant memory, the salvation that you've experienced in its place, the promise that I've made, the promised land that you'll be coming into, all the good things that I'm going to give to you. Be careful that you don't think they came because of the strength of your hands. They came from me. Hear the warning, Moses is saying to God's people. Because this is the human heart. This is the human heart in the desert on the way to the promised land. When you're there, you'll be tempted to think it was because of the strength of your arm. It was because of your intellect. It was because of the sweat of your brow. And it wasn't. It was because God gave it to you. Human heart always does this. My heart does this so frequently. It takes what God has given to me by his grace. And I think it was something of my own doing. Moses is saying, remember, you didn't build this. Remember, this was not the work of your hands. Remember that you did not earn this. Remember that you didn't plant this vineyard. It was given to you by God. It's a good gift. It wasn't because of the strength of your hands. It was something you received. It was not something you earned. You're going to forget that. So remember my provision. Remember my grace because the human heart is so quick to forget. Just this Thursday, last Thursday, uh, Dave Greening and I were leading uh, Christianity Explored. It's been thrilling to look again at the gospel afresh. And we were looking at uh, the issue of grace, the central theme of the gospel. God has sent his son on a rescue mission from the throne room of heaven 
all the way to the cross, to the empty grave, so that we would be rescued and restored to the perfect relationship with him that we have broken by our sin. It's not something we've earned. It's not something that we have as a reward. It's grace. It's a gift that's simply to be received. And we were thinking just how offensive grace is. It's really offensive when you think about it. I mean, if you think that the world should operate about what you have earned, that God owes you. God owes you something because of the goodness of your life. He owes you a, a reward because you're not as bad as other people. The good things you've done, the places you've not gone to, the money you've given away, all these different ways that we can earn our way to God. If you think that you are saved by being a good person, then that means there are limits on what God can ask of you. He owes you something, so it's a reward. That's not grace. That's merit. But if, as the Bible says, the world does not operate on merit, the gospel is about grace. God has rescued you. He's reached down and pulled you up. It's all of grace. It's not of merit. It's not of reward. It's not of earning. It's not of a Jew that God gives to you for a good life that you've lived. It's all of grace. If the gospel is true, that it's all of grace and you've been rescued by God, then there's nothing God cannot ask of you. It's so offensive when we think that there's something in us that God should be pleased with. There's something in us that God should be proud of. And the gospel says both your bad deeds and your good deeds are nothing in comparison to what God has done for you. The gospel is a free gift of God's grace. He's done everything. The only thing we've done is to rebel. But God has pursued us by his son and rescued us by his grace. It's the problem we all have of wanting to rob glory from God. We want to accrue merit towards God. And the gospel takes our knees out and says it's all of grace. There's nothing you could do. There's nothing you can have done. And so God says, I'll pay all the checks, I'll take all the risk, and you will get all the reward by faith in my son. It's the problem of the human heart. We're, we're robbers, we're glory robbers from God, and everything we receive from him is a gift. But then what's the solution if that's the problem, that we are, we're robbers in our hearts? Here's the solution. That's the second point. The real solution is found not in the parable of the tenants, but in the first parable. Look back to verse 28. Here's the solution, the real solution. In verse 28, there's a man who had two sons. Once again, we're in a vineyard. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. Now, right away, we know something. By contrast to the second parable, the first parable, we know something. We know something from the Bible. We know something from experts in history that this man, once again, was an investor. His sons were bone idle. They were lazy, but they were not used to working with their hands or he wouldn't have had to go and ask them. They would have been used to going to work. They would have been getting ready. They would have been uh, having a shave and a shower and ready for work. But instead, the father has to go to the first son and ask him to go to work. Perhaps he had an indulged life. And, and look at what he says. Verse 28, you're going to have to work in the vineyard today. Very unusual, very unpleasant. The first son, verse 29, says, no way. I will not. It's very definitive. I will not. 
Then he goes to the second son. Verse 30. I will, sir. I will. Literally, the word he says is Lord. And talk about reverence to your father. Lord, I will go. The first son is the bad son. The first son is the son who colors outside of the boxes deliberately. He's the son that uh, you don't love as much. Then the second son, he's the obedient son. He's, he's the one whose tie is always straight. He's the one who always offers to help after dinner. He's the one who's ready for work. Yes, sir, kind of salutes. And off he goes, ready for work. The first one is bone idle, very disrespectful. The second one is the one who's ready to work. And Jesus says, verse 31, let me make myself abundantly clear. The prostitutes and the tax collectors, the younger brothers of the world, they are the ones who get into the kingdom before the older brothers, before the good people. I mean, there are echoes here of Luke chapter 15 and the parable of the prodigal son. Before the moral people, before the self-righteous people, before the obedient people who think they can get merit from me by their obedience. Before those people will be the prostitutes and the tax collectors. People that you look down on religious leaders. Remember, he's speaking to them, verse 23, verse 45. Religious leaders, hear this. You cannot get into the kingdom of God. You cannot enter heaven. You won't have a relationship with me by your own effort, by your past, by your history. It's all of grace. God's grace redefines my past and it's redefined your past too i mean the key to everything in this parable is repentance the first son he starts off saying no i'm not going to work and the second son who says yes yes sir look at how verse 29 continues all that matters is repentance all that matters is repentance here's the first son sentence 29 verse 29 and he says I'm not going to go to work. I like my bed. Thank you very much. You've not asked me to go to work before. Why should I go now? I will not go. But look at how the sentence continues. I will not go, he answered. But later he changed his mind. Literally, that word is repentance. Literally, he, he had a complete change. He changed his mind and he went to work for his father. He, he repented. The same word is there in verse 32. Did you notice in the first parable? It ends in that way. In verse 32, there's a contrast as the religious leaders are told by Jesus, John the Baptist came to you. You heard him, but you made no change in your life. You did not respond to his call. You did not heed or hear his warning. The first son, I will not go, but then he changed his mind but the religious leaders refused to repent john the baptist came i've now come and yet you refuse to repent you are stuck in your ways you think you can accrue merit to get to god you're you're forgoing and pushing away my grace do you see what jesus is saying it's all about repentance the only thing that has power to change the human heart it's when the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, comes in and draws us to his Son. And the beginning of that is always repentance. God, I'm sorry for what I've done. I've lived my life without you. I've lived my life in spite of you. I've been determined to live my life by my own strength and efforts. Forgive me. 
forgive me. I see that I'm wrong. I see that I've trampled on your goodness. I've taken glory from you. I see that Jesus is the answer. He died for my sins. He bore my sins. He died in my place. And now I live in his freedom. Father, help me to praise you. That's what it means to become a Christian, to repent, to lay down your bad deeds and to lay down your good deeds and throw yourselves at the feet of Jesus. I mean, it's so easy to see if Jesus is a good moral example. He's just a help to me. He's just someone I look to and whose footsteps I follow, but really he's just a great moral teacher. Really, he's just a great helper. But I don't want to call him saviour. Because if he's my saviour, if he's my rescuer, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. I don't like the implications of radical grace. And we so need to hear this in respectable Surrey, don't we? We so need to hear this. We think we're not as bad as other people. We think if we're middle class that we can look down on those who speak with a less uh, pronounced tone than us, who went to different schools and who have a lower income and who just look and sound different. We can look down on them. Jesus says, no, you can't. Grace is the ultimate leveler. And who are the people who get into the kingdom of heaven first? It's not the respectable. It's not the religious elite. It's not the comfortable. It's the lowly and the poor and the marginalized. It's the people who've gone to poor schools, perhaps. It's the prostitutes. It's the tax collectors. I mean, we don't need to elaborate on what a prostitute's done in the past. But perhaps we do on the tax collectors. You know, the tax collectors, they would use the might of Rome to collect taxes for Caesar. They would give him some that he asked for and they would skim off some for themselves from their own countrymen. It's like the, some of the, the French in World War II who colluded with the Germans. Think how poorly they were treated and perhaps rightly so at the end of World War II. The tax collectors did just the same. They used their position of privilege and power to subjugate their own people, to bully them financially. But Jesus is a kind Lord. He's not a great moral teacher. He's not just a great example. He is a savior. And if you reject him thinking that you can live a good life, that you can accrue credit with God, you will choose another savior. Think about that. You will try and save yourself through working hard. We do that lots in Surrey. Through having a great career, we do that lot in Epsom. Through having the perfect family, through having a great physique, any other saviour from Jesus will be a cruel and a hard taskmaster. They will crush you. They will burden you. They won't satisfy you. But Jesus says this. Come to me all who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My burden is light. Jesus says, come to me. You can look to another saviour, but they will crush you. They will burden you. But Jesus is the only giving, life-giving Lord. He's the only one whose burden is light. He won't crush you. He will liberate you. He will enable you to stand. Stand secure in his goodness. Stand secure in his righteousness. It's the real solution that the first parable points us to. But the second parable finally shows us the ultimate solution. If there's a clue that repentance is central, it's imperative, it's key, then this is the ultimate solution. Let's look again at the second parable. Look at the characters in this story. You've got the owner, the business person, the investor. You've got 
the, uh, the messengers that are sent. And then you've got the son, verse 34. The tenants seized his servants that they beat him, killed one, stoned a third. And then after all the others, he sent to them his son. Verse 38. Last of all, they will respect my son, he said. Now, at this point, many people who read the Bible think this is, this is not true. I understand sending servants, but if he wanted to get his investment back, if he wanted to get his vineyard back, if he wanted to get the walls back and, and the watchtower back, no one in their right mind would send their son. If you wanted to get those things back, you, you just send in the law. You send in the police. You, you go through the law channels. You, you sue them. You go through the correct channels. You get the bailiffs and you send the police round. And you do something similar in the first centuries as well. You, you go through the proper channels. You wouldn't send your son. No one would make themselves that vulnerable. I mean, look at the hopes of the investor, verse 37. I'll send my son. They've not respected my servants. They will respect my son. They'll respect him. And at this point, we're in danger of missing something very profound. What does the investor want most of all? If he wanted to just get back the vineyard, if he wanted to just get back his land, if he wanted to just get back his crop, he could go through the, uh, the legal channels. He could go through the law courts. He could go through the justice system. He could send around the heavies and he could get it back. But what does the owner want? Does he want the crop? Does he just want the rent? What's he hoping for by being willing to risk his son? Most of all, more than the crop, most of all, more than the watchtower, most of all, even more than the money himself. He wants the relationship. He wants the relationship. That's the only way to explain why the investor sends his son. Maybe my son will turn their hearts. Maybe when they see how vulnerable I'm prepared to be, then they will respect me. Maybe they will turn back to me when they see my son coming over the horizon. Maybe then I can reconcile with them who have turned their back on me and, and beaten and been so cruel to my servants. Maybe they will respect him, verse 37. And this is a very pain-filled and yet a wonderfully clear picture right into the very heart of God. I mean, here's God and he's saying, there's one way and one way alone for me to deal with your resistance of my grace. There's one way and one way alone to deal with you keeping me at arm's length. There's one way and one way alone to deal with your thinking that everything that's come to you that I've given to you is by the strength of your arm. The only way for me to show you the strength and the fullness and the beauty of my grace is to show you in an even deeper way how much I love you. I mean, I've provided everything for you and yet you still turned your back on me. Therefore, I'll send you my very best. I won't hold anything back from you. I'll make myself vulnerable. I won't just give you gifts. I'll give you myself. Then you'll love me. I'll make myself vulnerable. I'll empty my heart. I'll empty heaven of my very best to see the height and the width and the depth of my love for you. Who could not trust me now? Who would resist my grace now? Do you see what this parable is saying? 
The key is repentance. The key is seeing what you've done and throwing yourself afresh on my grace. But the only way to do that is not to repent in a general way. Not to repent in an abstract way. The only way to repent truly is to see the beauty of the sun. You've got to look to the cross. And only then will you see why real repentance is always Jesus-centered. On the cross, Jesus, God's very best, is sent to die for the sins of the world. He died carrying and bearing and paying for the penalty that our sins, my sins, deserve. You can't just embrace God when you decide to. But now you can embrace God. You can run into his arms because of what Jesus has done. So that nothing stands in your way. All you need to do is repent and accept God's free gift of grace of his son. God's grace reconciles God to us and it reconciles us to him. It shows us that while we were still hostile, just like these tenant farmers, God sent his son. He didn't wait till we were having a good day. He didn't wait till we were in a good mood. Whilst we were still hostile, whilst we were still enemies, God sent his very best, his darling, his son, to rescue us, to ransom us. And that truth, that truth should just humble us. It should bring us low when we see the, the depth and the purity of God's love for us. That can begin to heal and melt your hard heart. God is not distant. He's not far away. He loves. And you see his love in arms unfurled, as we sang earlier on the cross of Jesus. But, but what does that look? How would that change your heart if it's been so hard to God? What would it look like now? Well, it will be full repentance. Will, it will humble your heart. You cannot look down on anyone when you see that you've been humbled by the depth and grace and beauty of king jesus when you know that you're a miracle you can't look down on anyone so there should be hopeful humility in the heart of every christian you're hopeful about the future because you know the grace of god but you're very humble he's brought you low and yet he's exalted you in his son it's it's hopeful humility is a sign of a new heart but here's the second sign as well there should be deep security deep security when you say you're totally saved by God's grace. Look, in Deuteronomy 6, you know what follows? It's Deuteronomy 7. That's why you go to Bible college. In Deuteronomy 7, you read this. Why did God set his love on his people? It's radical grace in the Old Testament. It's the gospel in the Old Testament. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you that he redeemed you from the land of slavery. You see, God did not choose his people because they were bigger, because they were better. God chose his people because he chose them. He set his love on them because he chose to set his love on them. Simple as that. I love you because I love you. That's what God said. Now imagine that you're getting ready to be married. Or imagine that you've been married for some time. And you say to your spouse, what is it that you love about me? And they say, well, that's easy. It was your figure. No one's ever said that to me. But it's your figure. Someone said it's your intellect. Someone said actually it's your sense of humor. I loved you because of these things. If someone ever says that to you, you're actually in a very perilous position. Because what happens when your intellect fades? What happens when your looks change? What happens when you're not funny anymore? 
It's a very perilous position if someone says to you, I love you because. God doesn't say that. God says, I love you because I chose to love you. And you can see the evidence of that on the cross. There's nothing in you that drew me to you. But I love you because I love you. That's what a husband should say to their wives. That's what a wife should say to her husband. I might have been drawn by your sense of humor. I might have been drawn by your intellect or your quiff of your hair. But I love you. I love you because I love you. That's what the parable of the tenant shows. God knows the risk of sending his son. But he sent his son not to get his investment back. He sent his son to restore a relationship. I love you because I love you. And if you don't understand that you're saved by radical grace, you'll always be longing for security and seeking to find that in other places. Let me finish with this. Right now, some of you are unhappy because God is sending you messengers. Things are happening in your life to humble you. Things have happened in your life and people have spoken God's truth. And it's, it's been unsettling for you to show you that you're not in charge. Let me say to you, don't kill the messengers. Don't kill the messengers, but believe them. Believe them as they point you to Jesus. And trust and turn and repent. Turn to Jesus while there's still time.